Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined by not Dimitri yet. He'll be with me next time, I promise. But today I'm joined by another Slav, GSP, <laughs> a good friend of mine who hosts, who will co-host the War Report with Konstantin Martelli. We'll have that linked below. GSP, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? Oh, thank you. And I'm honored to be on your show. Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, always admired your show. Uh, Constantine and I discovered you guys last year. And the uniqueness of your show, particularly from an orthodox angle, is, is something him and I really appreciate. Constantine and I are both uh, practicing orthodox Christians as, as you. So I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. No, we got to, you know, it's one thing they got to be someone to someone to be a fill in guest, not just be like someone that me and Dimitri talked to, but to be a fill in, you know, you got to be orthodox and it helps to even, you know, have a Slav because, you know, to America, I mean, I'm the American here, you know, it's kind of this, you know, this fusion of civilizations we have. So it's good to, it's good to have this, but uh, eventually we're going to let uh, GSP do his famous minutia minute about Ukraine. But before that, there's some bigger stuff going yes. on in the world with Serbia and Kosovo. We've, of course, talked about this extensively on World War Now. GSP's talked about it on the War Report. It really is, you know, you put it in with like Taiwan and then kind of Syria, Iran, the Middle East and the Caucasus and then Serbia, Kosovo. Those are like kind of the real four things, places where everything has been going hot. And Serbia, Kosovo, as GSP and I were just talking about this before we started recording, has the most similarities to the Ukraine situation, which is part of why it has been brought to the brink, I think, since the uh, since the SMO started in 2022. And what we've seen now, for those that aren't aware, is the Serbian population of northern Kosovo. A few weeks back, they totally boycotted their municipal elections, resulting in total Albanian control over their mayoral offices and effectively all the Serbs not recognizing these elections and these officials as legitimate. And this escalated as the authorities in Pristina, or, you know, the Kosovo authorities not recognized by the majority of the nations in the world, they refused to leave these municipal buildings. They were insisting that these mayors were legitimately elected, were going to honor these elections. It doesn't matter if only less than 3% of the population of these towns voted for these guys. So it led to this whole crisis of legitimacy. Serbs began gathering K4, which is the NATO mission in Kosovo, made up of a myriad of different countries' troops, they got into a clash and kind of got stomped by some Serbian nationalists <laughs> in northern Kosovo. And now uh, we've seen the, I don't think Serbia has been closer to moving their army in than 1999. I may, I may be presumptuous mm -hmm. to say that, but I think that's what's going on. GSP, what, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, uh, as we were speaking off air, the, the, the Kosovo conflict, uh, the you could even say the Albanian question is a is a big deal throughout uh, many Balkan countries, uh, Macedonia and Greece included. I think for me, one of the things that pushed me towards um, geopolitics and a more critical view of the West was the war in Kosovo. And just to put it into uh, a Macedonian context that I think highlights some of the, 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 the features of let's say, the gay or American power in the region. And that is when the war broke out, you know, Macedonia 
accepted thousands and th- like tens of thousands of uh, Albanian refugees from Kosovo. And, uh, the, you know, they were, they were mostly in a, in a camp in a town uh, or close to a town named Stankovic. And uh, but they might have been in other towns like Kumanovo and Skopje. And, you know, really not long after that, Albanians who historically have always lived in Macedonia, particularly in the northwestern section, uh, decided to storm Skopje, the capital of Macedonia, like they were, they were going to take it. So here are the Macedonians working closely with the Americans uh, to achieve this. Of course, our break from Yugoslavia uh, was bloodless. You know, generally, the, the, we've had good terms uh, with the Serbians. Uh, historically speaking, generally speaking. And, and now, you know, the, the thanks that we get is that uh, the Albanians now uh, feel they have the gumption to to try to take over another chunk of territory that is, is not theirs, even though they, you know, are part of the, the country, but uh, they do have another country that's all theirs next door. And... Um, Ironically, it was the Ukrainians who lent us some gunships, helicopter gunships from the Soviet era, particularly those that people might be familiar with, um, you know, seeing in the Afghan war in the 80s. So that was suppressed. And there was even a time where 19 CIA and CIA assets were captured by the Macedonians. And uh, but they were let go. And as my brother uh, put it, uh, he said, if we killed them, they would have bombed us like they bombed Serbia. And uh, so that that gives you an idea of how backhanded uh, the gay is. So you get no thanks for it. Now, I'm not aware how much they intervened, the Americans, in, in, in all this, but it didn't seem at the time like... Um, it was thankless. And, you know, when I go back to Macedonia, when I go to my hometown and I have to register, you know, have my passport looked over, there's forms that you have to sign. Very similar to like, you know, it's a visa like uh, that you have to sign. Now, I don't have to apply for a visa like if I were visiting Russia, for instance. It's not like that. But you do have to get it registered. So when I go there uh, at the police station, they have a photo plaque with the, 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 the shots, photos of all the dozens of policemen who died fighting against basically Albanian terror in Macedonia. Not just from like 99, 2000, but continuously. And so maybe the only good news is, is Albanians are leaving Macedonia the way they're leaving Kosovo. But that gives you an idea of how... Um, you know, um, double-handed the U.S. can be in its in its foreign policy, and you know when they you know their vassals feel very very emboldened, right? Like you have to you have to believe that the Americans are going to back you up in almost anything you do because they're they they kind of become drunk with power because of themselves on their own they cannot achieve anything, but then they feel like invincible with American power behind them. And that's, I think, what is so surprising this time in Kosovo. Because even despite, you know, guys like Hashim Tachi, 
who, you know, he was found guilty of war crimes. This is the former KLA, KLA, Kosovo Liberation Army leader. He was allowed to go back to visit his ailing mother, apparently. But um, what, what, what was really startling was a statement by Blinken, uh, essentially saying we strongly condemn the actions of the government of Kosovo that are escalating tensions in the north and increasing instability. We call on Prime Minister uh, Abini Tur- uh, Kurti to immediately halt these violent measures and reinforce the EU-facilitated dialogue. Now, Kurti went on, um, I think, CNN. It might have been CNN or Sky. And he, uh, he was very upset. But to me, this is, this is a, a, a pretty big deal. Uh, it's very unexpected. Uh, I, I, I'm curious to, to, to get, Conrad, your idea on, on, on what happened. What do you think of it? Were you well, I surprised? Agree. I was I was surprised because I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought that someone in Kurti's position would go through with pretty dramatic moves without guarantees from his benefactors. Yep. And I think um, we the only indication that might have caused that someone could have seen this coming was the last flare up, which I'm pretty sure was last year. I don't think it was in 2023 where all this happened with the license plate issue. Mm-hmm. If anyone remembers that, when there was the certain Serbs that either live, had were commuting across the Kosovo line with the rest of Serbia would have not been able to have their Serbian plates and have to get specific Kosovo licenses. And remember, Serbs don't recognize Kosovo as an independent country. Most countries don't, especially multiple EU countries. So it's important to view Kosovo not as even, not like, it's not even as legitimate of a state as Ukraine, however dubious you might view the legitimacy of the Ukrainian state. Kosovo is objectively by any metric yes. less legitimate than that. And what we saw when that first license plate debacle happened was Rick Grinnell actually called out Kurti and said that he was, you know, pushing things too far. So it's seen, and look, Rick Grinnell is a homosexual ex Trump yes. you know, crypto neocon guy that, you know, pretends to be not a neocon, but ultimately serves the globalist interests. And he seemed a while ago to think that this Kurti guy was taking it too far. So it seems that in general, Albanian nationalism, they they really have no interest in some nuance and they really do just want to do the 90s all over again and tear down churches and kick Serbs out is what it seems like. Because if yeah. they didn't, why would they be pushing the envelope considering that, frankly, Vucic was so close to signing that one EU deal, independent Kosovo, probably a few months ago was closer to existing mm-hmm. than it ever had. And before that, I remember having just kept up with this, diplomatically speaking, it was starting to become more likely that Kosovo would just become part of Albania than ever be an independent country in and of itself. But now Albanians are leaving Kosovo. Like GSP said, Albanians are leaving Macedonia. Albanians are leaving Montenegro since this. And part of that also is shown in the latest elections in these countries where the globalist candidates are losing. And I think this general issue in, in Kosovo is it, it, the reason, again, it's becoming so big is because of the resemblance to the Ukrainian conflict and how the interests of Russia, the Russian military industrial complex, as well as the interests of NATO, uh, all of their co- covert operations. I mean, Kosovo is a hub of arms trafficking, human trafficking, drug trafficking, the amount of, you know, covert, I think, corrupt globalist military criminal intersection is higher than nowhere else than Kosovo. I mean, that's where all of the Afghan uh, poppies and opium came in to be distributed throughout the West. <laughs> yes. So I think it's important for uh, people to recognize that even outside of, you know, punishing, well, I think it's important for people to recognize as well, 
Kosovo is in many ways to Serbia, what Ukraine was to Russia, that kind of spiritual heartland where, you know, we see the baptism of Rus was in Kiev, you know, St. Vladimir, similar things happened for the start and baptism of the kingdoms of Serbia and, you know, the saintly kings and, and monks and, and heritage that has happened there. Even Novak Djokovic has been talking about this recently, about how Kosovo is, fundament, is a fundamental spiritual heartland of the Serbian people. And of course, Kosovo was lopped away in the 90s, as well as Serbska and the Serbs of Bosnia were taken away in the Bosnian Wars. And then, of course, in 2006, Montenegro you know, voted, quote unquote, to leave Serbia and landlocking that country now from their former glory of the powerhouse of Yugoslavia is now a, a landlocked country with its, you know, most historic monastery separated from it by an occupying Muslim force backed up mm -hmm. by, by Zog. So I think it's important for people to view the direct parallels with, you know, with Russia there, with Ukraine having been, you know, taken away by well, technically by Lenin, and then, of course, in the collapse of the Soviet Union in a, in a true Westphalian sense. And now with, uh, with this latest clashes, people are talking about, oh, maybe, maybe there will be Wagner, Wagner in, uh, in Kosovo, in Serbia. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe this really will be a second front that Russia will, you know, maybe if things have changed and Russia feels it's demilitarized NATO enough, perhaps, that, I mean, I don't think this is true, but, you know, this is what I think people are worrying about in Washington, in the UK in the places that support support the independence of Kosovo as a state, and when it comes to these clashes that happened with K four, it's uh, it's important to recognize that the largest the two largest contingents of countries that were represented in that force that got attacked were the Italians and the Hungarians, and Hungary is basically Serbia's number one ally. You could even call Hungary a closer ally of Serbia than Russia these days, based on the circumstances. Mm -hmm. So. The fact that's that so many of those Hungarian troops were there, there was a video of them lowering their shields at one point. But uh, yeah, it was a, it's a very interesting dynamic. There's new pipelines being built between Hungary and Serbia. Hungary, mm -hmm. Serbia has the only region where Hungarians feel they actually have autonomy within another state. So the Hungarians, unlike you know how they feel about Transcarpathia in Ukraine, how they treat the Hungarians, Serbia is kind to their Hungarian minority, and so therefore Hungary, you know, I think is less hawkish in there. The, the Hungarian troops would naturally be less willing, I think, to, you know, beat the crap out of some Serbs who are, you know, obviously think that those, those Serbs all believe that they're still in Serbia in heart and soul. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think this is of course going to be interesting to watch and I, I don't want to see any violence escalate. But again, I also was afraid a few months back that Vucic would sign that deal because Serbia, yeah. I mean, Kosovo is not Serbia. And I don't think anybody who's a, a nationalist or especially an Orthodox Christian would, would want to see something like that signed. It, it, it will take something like for, I mean, the U.S. has, I mean, it, it is a giant U.S. base and it has other NATO members that are there. Uh, it would take something extraordinary like the U.S., and NATO would have to experience something like the fall of the Soviet Union for them to relinquish Kosovo. That's, that's how serious it is. Uh, that said, you know, I will say that even the American ambassador, J Jeffrey Hovenier, condemned the actions, said that they were not done in unison with the U.S. He addressed journalists in Pristina. So, I mean... I tend to think that I tend to think that 
the U.S. and the, you know, the, the, the NATO vassal states do not want some kind of confrontation to happen in Kosovo involving Serbia. Now, they did fly their, uh, their Lancer or Lancet bombers over Republika Srpska in Bosnia today, over several cities, including Sarajevo. I guess it's a warning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to Dudek and um, Murad, but I, I'm, 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 I'm honestly surprised because five, as you said, five months ago, I don't, th- I don't know if this would have happened. The, 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 there never has been a condemnation of the Albanian Kosovar authorities uh, in almost anything they do. This is really the first one I'm conscious of in the in the last two three years maybe Um, longer i mean i think it shows that they're definitely for better or for worse if they're like it has vucic thinking because vucic does last thing vucic wants of course is a conflict either he wants to join the european union but he's got to be thinking now maybe my like maybe they're more afraid of something like this happening here for a myriad of other reasons you know not necessarily that they would just lose but who knows you know what other you know, dominoes they have set up could could start tumbling i mean look at the region don't like you just mentioned dodik in Republika Srpska has base- effectively seceded from Bosnia. Like Bosnia and Herzegovina right now is not even a functional union United state as far yeah, as their yeah. judicial and military police operations go. And then you have Montenegro, which finally ousted Dukanovic, who had been a dictator there for 30 years under the auspices of NATO and the European Union. So we see the, you know, the former lands of the Serbian world are, are, are trying their best to come back to the motherland. And it seems that, you know, Right at the very end, when it might have been the end, Kosovo Serbs are, are, are trying to do the same thing. And mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's going to be important to watch. But again, this, everyone knows Serbia and Russia are very close. However, due to Vucic's political ambitions and Russia's needs to play it safe, like I said, Hungary has almost become one of their closer allies. China, of course, is a very close ally of Serbia, of just all of these Balkan countries, they're the main builders of all the infrastructure. So, they, this China will be keeping an eye on this conflict as well. Of course, China uh, does not recognize the independence of Kosovo for similar reasons <laughs> as um, as the European country. I mean, who else doesn't? Spain does not recognize the independence of Kosovo because they want reciprocity from the Serbs on the Basque country and Catalonia, who are secessionists there. Uh, Slovakia doesn't support. Uh, the independence of Kosovo and Greece, despite having over a hundred troops in the K4 contingency does yeah. not recognize Kosovo in many ways due to, I think, brotherly alliance between the Orthodox Serbs, as well as uh, some other, you know, they've got their issues with Macedonia and other people in the Balkans. I think they liked the, you know, I think they liked the pre 90s status quo in some, not, not regarding communism, but with, uh, with uh, some of the borders as far as, Mm. And the naming of things, let's put it that way. We don't need to litigate the Greek Macedonia thing here. <laughs> but it's, uh, I think a lot of the uh, the players that we talk about in Ukraine, they're all watching this very closely, as are we. But unless you have anything else you want to tap us in about the Balkans GSP, I think I'm ready for, you know, it's been so long since we, it's been almost a month, over a month, I think, since we've done World War Now. You know, the fall of Bakhmut happened and got totally finalized and the fallout occurred. You know, some big things are happening in Russia, Ukraine. So if you maybe want to start us there, you know, that sure. and uh, do hit us with the minutiae minute. 
Yeah, I'll just say, and this will, this might be a good segue. I, I will say this that I, I I I do think just to reiterate that the West, uh, for some reason, after five months, uh, does not want another front to open, which is surprising because it it had seemed for a year that that it, that the opposite was true. Uh, recall that when there was that huge earthquake in Turkey and in uh, Syria. You had telegram channels with, uh, uh, you know, that had Azov members that would say, "Why are you? Why are you giving these? Re- we need these resources. Why are you giving them to, um, to, to these?" Um, I won't mention the derogatory terms that were used, but so, anyways, yes. Yeah, so uh, the minutia minute. Uh, uh, so a, a lot has happened. Y- you can check our. Uh, our channel for like a more detailed analysis on on Bakhmut on uh, what we think was the strategy in Bakhmut um, a little bit of Prigozhin uh, and, and all of that stuff and maybe the other big news that has happened in the last month is these incursions uh, by you know the so-called uh, Freedom Legion or the Freedom Party of of Russia. And what is it, the RDK, where they, you know, went into the Bel, uh, Belgorod region, like for 24 hours, and then, you know, they they went back. But uh, let's start with the minutia minute. So if we, I'm going to do like a, a circle. I'll begin in areas where not much has been going on, except uh, an intensity in artillery duels, and that is in the south in Kherson. The more of that, it's even more true in Zaporozhia, moving eastward. Um, neither side is uh, like on any kind of uh, offensive. This is also true moving now uh, a little north to Marinka, which is just southwest of uh, Donetsk city. Uh, the Russians have decided to... Uh, I mean, the, the town is completely devastated if anybody has seen any footage out of Marinka. Uh, it's a small place divided by a river, and it is north of Ugladar. Uh, the one place where there, there are two places where there have been advances by the Russians, and one of those places is Avdiivka. Avdiivka right now is very close to being encircled. And unlike, uh, this is a, I'm, I'm speculating, unlike Bakhmut, the Russians might cut it off. Now, you know, when they, in Mariupol, in a way, there was, there was nothing the Russians could do but to cut it off, because, of course, one side of Mariupol was the Sea of Azov. So you only had three sides to work with. And now this continued, the, you know, the, the battle longer than it probably should have because the Ukrainians were basically hiding under the industrial complex as of Azovstal. Uh, it's also the case that uh, there are high rises, uh, even though Avdiivka is not very big, uh, but there are some high rises there. It is slightly bigger than a place like Ugodar. So I would also imagine that from uh, not just an optics angle, but from a morale angle, that because there's so much shelling of civilians in Donetsk and Lugansk, um, and most of the shells that fall on Donetsk city are coming from Avdiivka, or the Avdiivka direction, slightly west of there, 
for, there were five civilians that were killed at a poultry farm a couple of days ago in Lugansk. Uh, they're not coming, those shells are not coming from Avdivka. Those were HIMARS. Now, if we move further north, of course, Bakhmut. Um, uh, essentially, the lines have not changed in a week, including the, the, the buffer zones to the north and the south of Bakhmut. The Russians control the entire legal property of, of Bakhmut city, right? Despite well, what you know, the Western media was trying to tell you for like a week, mm-hmm. and then th- there have been gains, small gains around to the north, south of Kremenaya in the forest. From what I've read, this is not like their next target because Kremenaya, the the Sherwood Forest, that this is the area on the north side of the Severodonetsk River. It is not necessarily like a shaping operation in order to go to, uh, uh, and take Seversk. Seversk is kind of isolated between Slavyansk and the borders, like just outside the region of Lysychansk. Uh, what they want to do is move the Ukrainians further out from Lysychansk. Hmm. And uh, so there now there are reports that there are hundreds of uh, T-90M breakthrough tanks in this region for at least a week now. Of course, there's been a a foothold that's been gained further north in the uh, Kupiansk direction on the other side of the Oskal River. Now, the Russians have always had like a small section on the other side of the Oskal River, but uh, this is an area south of that area. And they've managed to gain about one to two kilometers in the last two weeks. Uh, so that, that's kind of significant. Now, I guess it's a good time to bring up the amount of strikes that have been happening. May has had 15 to 16 massive strikes in Ukraine. So that is one major strike every other day. Kiev has been struck no less than three times in the last 36 hours. One strike actually registered on the seismic scale. The other strike is the GRU headquarters, where people suspected Budanov might be. And uh, this might have, um, they might have been tipped off by this, people are saying, because Ben Wallace visited and there was some photo that was taken with some of the supporters uh, near where this building is. My suspicion is the Russians have known about this for a long time, that they have enough satellite surveillance that they know maybe which buildings uh, are likely to have these individuals in them. They did promise that they're going to take out command centers. Really, the only command centers that the Russians took out in 2022 was uh, a building that contained the Ministry for web intelligence and uh, the the ministry for aviation in venezia but uh there have been many uh strikes uh more ammo dumps are are have been hit uh all across in in the earlier part of the month uh we had that in odessa uh we had the 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 strike in uh ternopil and klimetsky but now there's been another one that happened in Jitomir. Jitomir is just west of Kiev. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the satellite photos show that this this whole uh, area was, and I've seen the, the video footage, big cloud. Not Klemetsky is like on another level altogether. I've never seen anything like that. But uh, all to say that the Russians are, 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 I think they're trying to attrition the material the, and the munitions that the West are supplying the Ukrainians for the counteroffensive because in a sense the Ukrainians have to do a counteroffensive because they have less manpower potentially even if the Russians don't field an army bigger than the Ukrainian army in Ukraine it can always be replenished at a faster rate or at a, at a rate for a longer period of time than the Ukrainians can and so the Ukrainians have to make a bold move because in the long run they will not be able to hold on or rather regain territory that they've lost. So I will leave it there for a a, a quick synapse of uh, the battlefield conditions in Ukraine. Well, you mentioned the counteroffensive. I have I have intelligence telling me that the Solarian uh, warriors of the Ukrainian army will be launching their offensive on the summer solstice at peak solar activity to harness the power of the sun against the Mongol hordes that they've been defending themselves from. That's a joke, of course. Sorry if if that was too autistic for anybody, but I... uh, yeah, you met. You, you talked about. You really laid it all out there, GSP. I appreciate that. And you mentioned um, the, you know, Putin. You mentioned hitting those strategic making centers, strategic uh, decision making centers, and it's yeah. slowly but sure, You know, for especially for Russian nationalists, I know it's frustrating. Putin is taking the gloves off in the slowest way possible at this point. You know, just really slow rolling it. We're seeing videos of. I mean, those some of those videos were some of the craziest things I had seen. Super, those Ukrainian drones flying over extremely nice Moscow suburbs and, uh, you know, things like that. I mean, it, some of the footage was very interesting because, you know, I'm not saying this just to say it, but Moscow is objectively a nicer city than uh, basically anywhere in Ukraine. So it's going to be like, it's going to be a bit, it's like, it's a massive city. So it's a bit of a, some mm-hmm. of those images, I thought it was like CGI when I was first seeing some of it, but it was, uh, it was real. And you talked about Belgorod as well, which was of course somewhat, con- I found the, uh, the Moscow and Belgorod things interesting in the reactions that they got. The U S was very much like the Kosovo situation. The U S was like, Hey, Hey, pump the brakes. You're taking this too far. Whereas Germany and the UK seemed mm. to uh, cheerlead the Moscow attack and some of these Belgorod attacks. And regarding Belgorod, I think one of the most interesting things to come out of this was the governor of the region, Vyacheslav Glabkov said in order for Belgorod to be safe from Ukrainian incursions, we must take Kharkov and exit. And obviously, he wouldn't be he wouldn't be saying that if he yes. thought that that was something that was a big no no in the Kremlin. So clearly, I think I think Kharkov, I think the rest of Kherson, I think Odessa, I think everything west of the east of the Dnieper at this point is very much up for grabs. I think they're gonna, like I said, there is gonna be something this summer from the Ukrainians. Obviously, the Russians are they keep demilitarizing them, they keep blowing up their ammo. You mentioned the Kimenitsky strike. I hadn't seen anything that big since. I think the Lebanon port explosion, yeah. which I still stand was probably a missile attack that, or something that just, you know, got reported as that fire. But that mean that's, it was, those were some of the largest, you know, quote unquote, non-nuclear, whatever, all that's, you know, who knows the truth on all of that kind of stuff, but the non-nuclear explosion, I mean, that was quite massive. And, you know, there was talk of depleted uranium being involved in that. You know, I'm not, I'm not the person that can make those kinds of prognoses, but there was, it was, it was quite a, you know, when you realize that we're in the 21st century and we have the ability to make some of the 
biggest explosions ever and you start to actually see what some of those look like it kind of brings some of this really really home for us but mm-hmm. in general the uh the war is i think well i mean the, the whole for a while i mean zolushny people thought zolushny was dead i think Prigozhin said that he might be dead and now he's back after having been gone for a very extended period of time i think the most likely explanation is there's some big uh there's some big rifts and some big chaos behind the scenes as far yeah. as the Kiev regime goes, as far as Zelensky, Zeluzhny, some of these other characters. And I, I really don't know. I have no concrete things to say on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see Zelensky go before uh, the powers that be in Washington and, and London admit any kind of uh, change of course, I guess, on their policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, two things I'll say about, you know, the, 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 you know the Russo-Ukrainian war uh, at the moment, and um, uh, the first thing you know about Zelushny is he missed that NATO meeting in Brussels, mm-hmm. right? And his excuse was that uh, he was at a wedding, right? Which is it's so patently ridiculous. I mean, he's not like Sierski, just in charge of the ground forces, which in it of itself is the biggest force to take care of. But Zelushny is responsible for every branch of the military. Right. He's uh, I don't know if he's like Shoigu or Gerasimov, but he's like, that's it. That's as high as it goes. And uh, in terms of like actual military brass, not someone who's like, um, I don't know, I would say a lawyer. But in Ukraine, it's usually like somebody that did theater arts and now is in charge of (laughs) someone that's not a Christian. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) That's right. So, <laughs> yes. So um, there's something very odd about that. I agree. Uh, there, there are probably rifts in the in the background that are happening right now. Now, his video was not very convincing. Like, hey, hi, I'm OK. Peace out. Like, you're, dude, you've been gone for 24 days. You missed the NATO meeting. And like, uh, you're just going to do the little victory thing. Like, you know, like you're at a barbecue and somebody pointed the camera at you. It's there's something very odd about that. Uh, the other thing I'll say is, like you, you mentioned earlier about the drone attacks uh, on the outskirts of Moscow. So apparently there were 19 of them, uh, three like they were knocked down. I saw one of them get blown up in the air mm-hmm. uh, by, again, some kind of electronic device. Nothing hits it. it it's kind of like the drone that flew over the Kremlin and just like burst. I don't understand like what that technology is. It could be because the Russians are very good at this kind of electronic warfare because they are wreaking havoc with like uh, the storm shadow missiles and everything. So the other thing is the, the three that got through though, like one of them had a significantly a significant blast, let's just say. And you have to ask yourself, like, I mean, that's not like some of the other drones that got blown up. This is a big drone. This is kind of like the drones that they used on um, their uh, their military air base um, southeast of Moscow. Uh, the, name, the name escapes me now. It has a German name. In any case, I have to wonder, like, um, how did it get through? Like. The small drones, obviously, uh, they're done by infiltrators, interlopers. 
who, you know, Russia took 2 million Ukrainians just in 2022. That doesn't account other Ukrainians through the years that, you know, could be there just for sabotage purposes, right? But these big drones, uh, my guess is they must have flown them low. And, you know, there, a lot of the, the S-400, S-300 systems, they're basically there to take out fourth and fifth generation uh, uh, planes rather than like 70s um, drones that are kind of like a quasi rocket plane, you know, if you know what I mean. But, um, you know, one of them did hit the suburbs. Now, it was miraculous. No one died from what I've read so far. But the but the Russians, you know, they will have to respond. Again, I think like, you know, one of the reasons why the Russians don't respond the way they do is uh, they want to keep escalation. I don't know. They're playing an attrition game and they believe that there is a breaking point. And maybe what we saw happen in Kosovo is a is a sign of a breaking point. And, I think in a lot uh, of ways, like we've talked about in the past, how Ukraine has won the information war on the international level. Russia is trying to maintain frame on the narrative about escalation. Like they don't want to lose, like they don't want to do something that can then be spun completely out of their intentions because that's what the West, that's how it will work in the West. And they know that any any action that is viewed as too aggressive by the West will be spun as a, as a big thing. And, and who knows when, because as we look, Russia doesn't want to uh, fight NATO directly in Ukraine, and Russia doesn't want to. Uh, frankly, Russia's are the fact that Russia has to annex more and more territory is against their interests because they know that the U.S.'s broadest plan is to wage guerrilla warfare in occupied Ukraine for perpetually forever. Yes, and Russia doesn't want to do that. Russia wants to only occupy territory where they know the majority of the population wants to be part of Russia because, like yeah. I said, they don't want to deal with a insurgent you know fifth column directly funded by nato right. with advanced weapons for a decade and it's uh that's why again they recognize putin recognizes though that you can only give so much before you start to face political consequences which is why in his mind i think he would rather take out some high he would rather announce that maybe Zeluzhny died in a bombing than perhaps push to take a whole province in a big you know big arrow offensive as it's called in the mm -hmm. military discussion community yeah, I totally agree. And um, that's why, like, I've always been suspicious about this idea that uh, Russia wants to go. And you have people who are pro and anti-Russia that think that Russia wants to or will go uh, to the border of Poland. I, I, I honestly do not see. I mean, I didn't think Russia would invade. I'll be honest. Right. The only the only caveat I had to that, they will not invade unless Ukraine goes full steam into Donetsk and the shelling started to happen and then it happened. But before Ukraine started shelling Donetsk again on levels that were like 2014 uh, in 2022, I, I didn't see the Russians wanting to go in. And, you know, one of the things I said was the amount of hostile population to them, right? Even in places like Poltava, which are generally like considered central eastern central close to the Dnieper, like it's going to be hard <laughs> like forget like for everything from kiev and west like it's not going to be easy um this was a, a thorn in russia's side during the soviet union 
for, for 10 years. And I've often speculated that maybe why Crimea was given to Ukraine in the first place, besides the fact that uh, Khrushchev's wife was uh, Galician, she was from Western Ukraine, and um, it was to appease them, right? But I mean, there's a whole history of, the, of, of Russia, both Soviet Russia and Imperial Russia, uh, giving territory, you know, Kursk, uh, sorry, not Kursk, um, Kharkov, like to make the state more viable, right? Remember that Russia paid Ukraine's entire Soviet era debt, which it didn't do for any other state within the Soviet Union. Hmm. And it still paid its debt from 91 to 2017 in order to persuade it. But there is no, there is no persuading it. I think like the attack on the GRU center, like that wasn't a, really a big deal. Obviously, something penetrated that that building like through the roof, uh, but it's not like completely leveled it. I would also imagine that guys like Budanov, like all of them have like places where they're going and hiding like that are not so easily found. Uh, but that doesn't mean they don't have staff where you would expect them at the location that will, you know, traditionally host the GRU. I, I would not think the entire premise is emptied of those people that work uh, on, under that ministry. I think we're, um, you mentioned the fact that we, it's going to be really tough for Russia to go even that far west of the Dnieper at all. And I think, look, the most, I could see a situation arising where they have to go west, but I, I just don't see how Ilvov and the region in that region no. and the area around it doesn't, they've either got to make that its own little meme landlocked Estonia or give it to the Poles or something because it's just that, that's just no way that's going to work and I, I think to get a little more theopolitical here in World War Now style there's I don't see any way outside of some, some, some dramatic almost spiritually based kind of kind of movements and shifts in the culture in the region in Ukraine to, for this to move forward because look Russia is not I, I don't see Russia not taking Kharkov and some of these other places, even Odessa, frankly. But that's going. But at the same time, I don't see the Ukrainians, you know, as of right now, in a lot of those regions, fully accepting that. I think we are going to see. I think it's been a while since we've seen something like this. This is something you read about in the history books, like the nineteenth, you know, twentieth centuries and things. But I think we will see. I think a dramatic, even change of. Uh, I don't know about change of heart, but like I think a shift maybe based on some internal Ukrainian politics, maybe based on something going on in the church. But I think for better or for worse, a lot of Ukrainians may end up returning and, re and maybe even, I don't know, want to say apologizing or repenting, but uh, I guess, um, you know, reverting back to a pre-insane Ukrainian nationalist identity time. And uh, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how that happens. I'm, of course, praying that the country can, with the whole schism and everything. I mean, Metropolitan Pavel recently, for those that don't know, the abbot of the Kiev Caves, Lavra, his house arrest has been extended for another month. I had seen reports yes, as far as I the territorial that. gains of Russia that they had. They're getting closer and closer to Sviatogorsk, but the Ukrainians seem to be pushing back there too. And I just, I'm just praying that finally they can take that so one of these great lavras of the of ukraine can be safely behind 
the front lines inside the Russian Federation, but it seems that it's still right there where the shelling and the the thing and things are happening, which you know that's just not good for monastics who are trying to live a peaceful, prayerful life. So it's important to keep them all in your prayers. But uh, unless you have anything else you want to say about about specifically about Russia, and you well, actually, I want to say one other thing. It seems that the Russians have destroyed the uh, what is it, the Ukrainian warship? Oh, what was the name? I just had it right here. The uh, Yuri Olefrenko, which according to Russians, what the Russians is the last warship of the Ukrainian Navy, which I don't want to reiterate that too hard. I remember two days after the SMO started, they claimed the Ukrainian Air Force no longer existed, which wasn't true. Obviously, we've they've been re there. Well, they're trying to be restocked. I know there's been talk of these F-16s. I don't know how real that's going to be, but we're going to be watching that. But it seems that this uh, Odessa ship was destroyed, which ultimately points towards a future push towards Odessa, largely from the sea as well. I think that action does mean that I think that eventually will come. I don't know how long from now, but I, I'll be keeping my eyes out for that. GSP, if you have anything else to say about, yeah, about yeah, Russia and Ukraine, one, I was going to... Yeah. So, um, the, uh, the missiles that are supposed to... Uh, the, the planes, rather, that are supposed to carry these storm cloud missiles... And, and other mis ordinances from uh, America, not just Britain, um, possibly the Atakams. They had a group of seven Su-24s that got hit. From the satellite imagery that I've seen, the seven were grouped close together. Two of them do not even exist. All the other ones, except possibly for one on the extreme left, it seems undamaged. Um, so that will, uh, again, this is another, uh, hit by the Russians destroying their material, um, uh, so that they are denied the ability to shape the battlefield, because I'm very sure that when they feel that they have to, not necessarily ready, but when they have to, uh, commit to an act on the counteroffensive, they would be using these missiles in droves to stretch the, the Russian forces. And that's really part of the reason why they're attack, attacking Belogorod. Uh, and uh, apart from, you know, getting good optics for, for Western audiences and to keep everybody's faith in the war going. Uh, because a lot of this war really is about, I believe we will win. I believe we will win. You, you know, th this idea that the Freedom Party of Russia uh, is going to storm Moscow and like... They, they want to meme this into reality, but the fact is, is um, for the moment, the, uh, the Russians seem pretty united. And uh, even if you look at Western-based sources from the Moscow Times, uh, Putin's ratings are quite high. They're at at least 80%. So I doubt it. Yeah, Putin's approval is, has, been, has been maintaining a very solid, you know, Raid throughout all of this, and I think yeah. uh, uh, we'll talk about some other politicians, Erdogan, of course, and Assad, and some of the recent things going on with them, and how that, you know, the, it, it, I, as I say, the authoritarian personality is in in, in <laughs> politics. Yeah. But um, before that, we want to go southeast a little bit to the Caucasus. I think it's been a pretty interesting week in mm. Caucasian politics. I'm sure you watched it, GSP. I watched as many of the as much subtitling as I could of the. It was the Eurasian Economic Summit, I believe, in Moscow that had Pashinyan, Aliyev, um, the heads of Tokayev of Kazakhstan. Um, yeah. 
it had Bel- oh, Lukashenko was there, of course. Uh, the heads of Kyrgyzstan were there, and this had a this was where some you know some words were exchanged between Pashinyan, Aliyev, and Putin about the Nagorno-Karabakh Artsakh issue between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which you know has been a hot and cold conflict again since 2020, and it seems that the Armenians are going to be totally giving up their any kind of attempted claim on the region, totally recognizing Azeri territory, which, you know, the fact that Pashinyan is, the fact that Pashinyan is still even in power yeah. in Armenia is actually surprising to me after the total failure that was the war and everything going on there. And ultimately, the situation is fascinating because both Azerbaijan and Armenia are allies of Russia. And while Azerbaijan is a very close ally of Israel and is probably somewhat more aligned with the West, Pashinyan has been really making moves towards the West as well. And I think this summit was actually Putin's attempt to really bring both powers back and the situation kind of back under the auspices of Russian control, because Russia, I think, has a very vested interest in being the most, having diplomatic, any control over the caucus disputes, because they know that I mean, look at the, the the Americans tried to convince the Georgians to start a front against that was the that was the front that I think America was willing to support and see go through, partially because I think for a number of ethno-religious reasons, Americans the American government could care less about Georgians and Russians dying fighting each other. But I think uh, what we see, I mean, Georgia is in the news recently too. The head, I believe, of the Georgian Dream Party which is the dominant party there, blamed NATO for the conflict in Ukraine. And this is a yep. NATO aspirant country. Yes. You know, Georgia considered like the most, anti- Georgia doesn't even have diplomatic relations with Russia. They, their ambassador is Patriarch Ilya, who does all of their political negotiating for them when he goes to visit Patriarch Kirill in Moscow. That's the extent of their political relations. And here he is denouncing NATO. So I think it shows you how how much the West is kind of fumbling this bag, at least in the eyes of any reasonably Christian population. Right, and they've opened up the airways between Georgia and Russia, uh, much to the chagrin of the Americans and the, I forget her name, uh, the president of Georgia. But um, as far as I know, with the agreement to, uh, of Nagorno-Karabakhna, uh, um, from what I understand, they're supposed to be like, the agreement is that they will be semi-autonomous. Now... <laughs> You know, I hate to call it like a Minsk agreement deal. Uh, it literally it, is. It's literally just Minsk the caucuses. Let's just be honest here. Yeah, it, it kind of is. And uh, that could be a bad portent. Um, it might work. It might work for a while. I don't know. But, the, you know, it is interesting that before the outbreak of the war in 2020, Pashinyan got rid of... Uh, two or three of Armenia's uh, best generals. And a lot of Armenians suspect that he did that because he is, I don't know, kind of paving the way for Azerbaijan to do this. I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, I know that Azerbaijan has some gas pipeline or oil pipeline uh, that they, like they want to open up this corridor. I, I can't explain Pashinyan's actions before 2020. They don't make sense to me, right? Interestingly, you know, one of the reasons that the the uh, the Armenians didn't fare that well in that conflict is the use of Bayraktar drones. And the 
the Ukrainians thought that that like they were very confident because even before the outbreak of hostilities in the early part, the first half of February 2022, uh, the Ukrainians successfully knocked out some of the Donbass People's Republic's artillery with Bayraktar drones. I remember that in, in, in April 2021. But, um, you know, had those generals still been in place, um, I, I don't know what would have happened. Clearly, it, it, it or it appears, I should say, that maybe Armenia was not prepared. And really, in the opening months of the war in Ukraine, neither was Russia with the Bayraktar drones, but they... I would say by May of 2022, they, they got a handle on it. And now the Barakta drones, there isn't anything left of them. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the Iranian drones have really proven to be the dominant drone force in the, in the conflict. Yeah. And the, the whole uh, interaction, actually, between Putin, Aliyev, and Pashinyan was pretty interesting. I, I, the physiognomy in all of them is just fascinating to me. These these <laughs> cockroaches. Um, it's, <laughs> but the um, at the beginning, I, I just noticed like Pashinyan seemed very smug. He was kind of trying to seem like he was confident, and then by the end, he was you know had his hands all over his face, and Aliyev was grinning. In general, Azerbaijan is very much, I think, dominated and won this conflict for. Like you just said, I think there's some might have been some deliberate military sabotage because historically Armenia has been able to punch above its weight militarily yes. against Azerbaijan did not happen this time. But Azerbaijan, of course, has all sorts of legs up over Armenia, not the least of which being their total alliance with Turkey, their access yeah. to the Black Sea, their insane amounts of natural resources, their population that's almost four times the size of Armenia. The fact that they're not enemies with Armenia's biggest benefactor of Russia, <laughs> they, um, they, they saw the opportunity and realized that they would likely be able to get away with it, even though they, they were pretty brutal to some people in even in 2020, there was some, I don't want to just go on, oh, war crimes, but like, you know, they killed people, they did some, they did some pretty egregious things, and they, they just did. needed to be able to get away with it. And, and, and one, of, one of their, one of their uh, I don't know if he's a colonel or a general, or a marshal, but one of the guys now serving in the Azerbaijani military as an officer, you know, he was, I believe, in Austria or Germany for a NATO meeting, and he shared a room with a German and an Armenian. And during the night, he killed the Armenian with over 20 blows with an axe. He was put in jail and released, I think he had a very short term, like 10 years. And now he's, he's serving. That, I've seen them do, yeah, incredibly gruesome things, the Azerbaijanis. Uh, personally, not a fan of them. Yeah, I think... Um... Like I said, the, uh, the it's interesting. Dimitri's discussed that technically there are more uh, canonical Orthodox Christians in the Azeri military than there are in the Armenian military. But I don't think that. Uh, I think in general, it's still you know Armenia as a Christian. It's like I've talked about before how Armenia is always going to be in danger because if they didn't exist, there'd be this unbroken Turkish belt from Turkey to you know the Western provinces yeah, of China. Yeah. But you, if you if you really think about it, but. Um, Armenians, you know, kind of there in the way. And unfortunately, it seems that Armenian politics and their politicians are not uh, thinking within the national interest of Armenians or the Christian interest of Armenians, which is unfortunate. But I think um, especially if they don't, uh, if they want to ally with the West explicitly more against Russia, then I don't think Russia will have any problem, you know, 
helping Azerbaijan with its political claims. Unfortunately, they just don't have the Russia doesn't have the capability to be that charitable to, you know, to a country like Armenia if they're not going to play ball with them. Yes, yes, and um, you know, you mentioned Takayev, and um, yes, I imagine there's other like there's other pressing issues that they would like to take care of, and Kazakhstan is one of them. And I don't say this just because there was. Uh, uh, ostensibly an attempted coup just before the war in Ukraine broke out. But because, you know, Tokayev sometimes signals to the West and sometimes he signals to Russia, he does overall, I think, play more ball with the Russians than he does with the Americans. But the Americans have a big presence in uh, Kazakhstan. They have a George Soros University. They have all kinds of uh, CIA NGOs running amok there. I believe that Tukayev is going to try to play like Erdogan plays uh, between East and West. One of the things that he has mentioned that he wants is for Kazakhstan to be a big industrial power. Now, <laughs> if you're familiar with, you know, the, the model between land and sea power, mm -hmm. uh, Kazakhstan is a big place. It is twice the size of Ukraine. It is not a joke. It like... If you placed it over Europe, it would cover most of Europe. However, uh, a lot of the, it, it's also very dry. It does have ports in the Caspian Sea, uh, which would lead it down to Iran. Uh, other than that, it is essentially, it, it is kind of landlocked, except for the Caspian Sea, but the Caspian Sea itself is kind of landlocked. It doesn't flow out into any ocean. But I can see his thinking, right, that that is a, a good option because one of the things that American NGOs are trying to do is foster a kind of ethnic hate towards both the Russians and the Chinese, making them, you know, fearful that there's going to be a Chinese takeover of Kazakhstan mm -hmm. uh, because of uh, Belt and Road initiatives and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I think Kazakhstan aiming to become like an industrial power, if it aligns itself closer to Russia and China and does that, like, it does not have the manpower to ever challenge China. I mean, let's just say that, right? But it's a good uh, bargaining position. Uh, and it's a good, you know, narrative for the future to grease the wheels, as it were, to uh, make that Eurasian pact work. And it would be good for Russia because it would mean, like, a lot of Central Asians uh, would not try to find meager work six months of the year in Russia, because that's what they do. They go on these six-month rotations. Uh, I remember my first visit to Moscow. I stayed at a hostel, and there was a, um, a family from Kazakhstan that was there for a few days, and then they left. And that's what he told me. That's what, you know, I've also met Tajiks and stuff. And um, they don't have voting rights or anything like that. So they, um, and I've even seen, like, I've actually seen, like, regular, like, Slavic Russian guy grab one of these guys and pull him to the um, uh, the police uh, station. <laughs> that was in St. Petersburg. He might have been an undercover cop, for all I know, but uh, he was dressed in plain clothes. So you see all kinds of things uh, uh, when you're there sometimes for like a longer period of time where you don't just like go to, I don't know, the, the touristy areas. You mentioned the uh, you know the land the the powerful land 
base that is the mass that is Kazakhstan, you know, the idea of the, and in many ways we're seeing in this conflict and in the world in the 20th century has been the, the phallusocracy versus the teleurocracy, you know, the, the sea power and the empire versus the land-based empire. And right now, of course, we see the U.S. and the U.K. being the dominant phallusocracy and, you know, Russia, and I guess you could say China still being the dominant teleurocracy, the land powers, but, and I think this can help us transition into talking about, you know, not Russia, Ukraine, the we're going to talk about Turkey, Syria, and China. China is trying, is building what's ultimately going to become the world's largest, you know, blue ocean Navy. And will mm-hmm. I think is on track in the next, you know, multiple decades to surpass the United States. And so if you can then see that, that would be an emergent, you know, China as a, as a thalassocracy, then allying with a, uh, Russian uh, teleurocracy, which also is gaining more and more access to the sea and the Black Sea, and in, and you know, depending on what happens in, you know, in the North Sea and the Baltic region, but and then at home in America, as America is forced to retreat internationally, we can, I think, from as an American nationalist, I, I can hope for this. We could see America maybe emerge as its own teleurocracy and harness and utilize the resources we have here at home in our vast land empire and stop being this outward-facing merchant sea, you know military mm-hmm. for for hire for zog that you know goes around with our power most powerful navy in the world doing whatever we want i think we're we're going to start seeing that change and if you want to hear more about this uh this coming week i had a great conversation with my boss dr steve turley about these kinds of things that are going to be on his youtube channel so if you want to hear me you know talk about that stuff uh check that out but i want to hear before we move specifically to we, i kind of we don't have too much to talk about with china but we can't not talk about erdogan and the election mm-hmm. uh me dimitri and david live stream the first round where erdogan almost got 50 percent, but then in the second round he only got 52 percent with kilich derulu getting up to 48 percent. so it went down the wire it was close but erdogan did pull it out from the perspective of this show it seems that the saint paisios moment has been delayed at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if the way Erdogan goes is a health issue. That might be my that might be my prediction. Ultimately, mm. how he goes, it seems to have adequately consolidated his political base. But ultimately, this is a good thing. The fact that Turkey will not be turning against Russia and the Black Sea means, you know, that perhaps World War Three has been pushed back more than it has because we know Kilic Darolu. He was he was going all in for NATO, and they knew that he was going to have to after all the favors there were doing him to get him elected in this election you know the powers that be through everything at erdogan and he still pulled it out so i I think we uh we it's a victory for and we're seeing assad as well you know welcomed back into the arab league we're seeing iran and saudi arabia reconcile so american the american ability to manufacture consent and do whatever they want politically has uh very much passed as we've seen all these leaders have been able to maintain frame maintain their power and the U.S. has to has to take it. I mean, everyone was congratulating Erdogan. The, the, I, I thought there might be perhaps an attempted color revolution, but nope, that that, that wasn't going to happen at all. So it seems that the U.S. really is receding. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons, uh, just to uh, continue focus on Turkey. So yesterday, uh, Turkey announced uh, in conjunction with Egypt that they are now formalizing relations again they will be opening their respective embassies again that, that, that's a big deal uh saudi arabia has requested to join BRICS. it wants to speed up that process i think like basically what the world is seeing is uh it's going to be asia and central asia 
that are going to be developing the most. And that's where investment is going to be flying to. I say this because you, 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 you mentioned American power does seem to be declining. Its influence, at least, seems to be declining. And really, after the destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline, I mean, Europe is left in a lurch. What is it uh, going to do? In, in many ways, it's convinced the rest of the world to work with China. Not just because of uh, the example that was set by the sanctions against Russia and taking Russia off of SWIFT and, you know, the freezing of assets, although all of that matters, but really it's just the higher cost of, of energy that is going to damn Europe to uh, never develop its industrial base the way it had done so before. That entire model was, even during the Soviet era, was cheap gas is going to come from Russia you're going to develop a, a, a great industry. You're going to work closely with France in this regard. France would be like a big consumer base, but also have its own industry. But de definitely Germany would be the great industrial power of Europe. And uh, that model worked, but, the, the pro but it essentially became a victim of its own success because America cannot allow for there to be a powerful Europe. And uh, that's partly what this war in Ukraine is about. It's not just cutting Russia off, but it's cutting Russia off to ensure that Europe cannot challenge America, economically yeah, speaking. I mean, I'm not talking about militarily. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, we see uh, we've obviously seen the destruction of the Nord Stream. I mean, right now, I wouldn't be surprised if I was Russia. I'd have guards all over. Power of Siberia too. You know, the one that's going to be billing towards China, which is going to be a huge one of the biggest shifts in energy, I, the energy economy that we're going to see with, you know, mm -hmm. the total movement of China and India towards, you know, it seems to be like Russia, even Japan, who, you know, were one of the first to sign on to the sanctions. They're back to buying Russian oil at a, a they are not obeying the price caps. So it's yeah. uh, the, the Russians have this one as far as the, the energy stuff goes. And again, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that Russia can't still mess this up. There's no, I'm not saying that's in the bag for them, but as far as, like you said, like just by the economies in some of these countries, China, India, even Central, like you said, Central Asia, this is, for better or for worse, that's where money and influence and the Belt and Road Initiative, it's where it's, it's going to be moving up in the world. And that's where the focus, I think, is going to be in these next centuries. And for Americans, I think it'd be better to hope that we could, like I said, we can turn inwards a bit and uh, utilize our own land and resources instead of trying to counter this brought these broader initiatives that are going to happen, whether we like them or not. And yeah. before we start to wrap this up, I want to mention the uh, one thing that I think is super great and interesting is the Rublev Trinity icon is mm. back in the church. It has been uh, for years. It was in a museum. For those that don't know, the Rublev Trinity icon is one of the most famous pieces of iconography in the Orthodox tradition. It pictures, you know, the, the three visitors in the angelic form uh, that visited uh, Abraham and they uh, they're representative of the Trinity, of course. And they, uh, and Andrei Rublev, of course, famous Russian iconographer from, you know, the 1400s and the Soviets took this beautiful icon and moved it to a museum. And now Putin and the church have finally ordered it to be moved back to its original home at the Holy Saint Trinity, Holy Trinity, St. Sergius Lavra, which is a, 
very well-known monastery in Russia. But before that, it's going to be displayed at Christ the Savior Cathedral for mm-hmm. multiple weeks, which, I mean, I think this, uh, you know, I, will this affect, you know, the, the military situation? Those of us who are, you know, those of us who are religious and Christian and take these things seriously might think that it will. But I think this is a very good step for Russia for, you know, I think, Look, those of us in the West who hate communism and have always hated communism will always critique, will always have critiques of how the Russians, you know, handled their their communist history. But this is, I think, a really good step in the right direction. And for those that want to hear more about Orthodox icons and whatnot, check out episode eight of Ether Hour I put out pretty recently. Me and Dimitri talk about icons. We talk about the Mandilion, the Shroud of Turin, general theology behind iconography and the use of icons and the face of Christ in battle. You know, we talk about Tsar Ivan the Terrible and his use of it. So it's a really interesting show. Check that out if you're interested. I just wanted to be sure to mention that. But I'm just, uh, I'm very pleased by this in general. I think, you know, we, uh, I've heard about this from from sources like Father Joseph Gleason, that this war is also, it is prompting a bit of a return to, to Christian, you know, Christianity was already growing and resurging in Russia. I think the, uh, for better or for worse, the special military operation has expedited that. Oh, it, 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 it certainly has. I have a, a, a friend in, um, in, in Moscow, and uh, she messaged me um, today, and uh, she, she, she's even, like, she, she, she was never religious, and she's, uh, she was posting me some, some images on, on Skype of um, some of the churches, and uh, so that's a big change as far as uh, I, I've known her. So... Um, the other story that uh, I, I lost it here, but the um, the the remains of a um, of a priest that was killed in 1918 by the communists, uh, I believe, around Saint Petersburg, have been found. So that's very good news. If I find it, I, I'll I'll tell you. But my notes are everywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, no worries. But I think I saw you talking about the new, there's going to a new canonization, a new, new martyrs. Being yes. Yes. Considered, that's which, which is, uh, that's been happening. The Russian church, you know, has been very solid. Yes. I saw that as well. And canonizing their, uh, as they find more and more victims of the communist yoke, they've been, you know, canonizing them, which he, they've, he they've kind of the taken. Hmm. They've taken yeah. inspiration from the Greeks who have done a really good job of canonizing as many martyrs from the Turkish yoke. And I think mm-hmm. that's, um, as look, we saw in the 19th, in the 20th century, we saw a resurgence of Mount Athos after the Turkish occupation. I think as this happens and we've, as this national renewal we're seeing in Russia, whether you think of that militarily or religiously, part of that, of course, is this new choir of saints that are, that have their intercessions being asked for by the, the masses of Russian Orthodox, the, uh, you know, we, as we say, the blood of the martyrs waters the seeds of the church. And I think, I mean, as Father Josiah Trenum reminds us frequently, no, there had never been a larger synaxis of martyrs gathered together since the early church than in the beginning of the 20th century in Russia. So it's important to recognize the amount of holy blood that was spilt in that time. But I think we're, uh, we're getting pretty, pretty, we're getting pretty close to the end here. If there's a, I think we've covered most everything. Um, there's some in the U.S. Of course, DeSant- Ron DeSantis declared his, you know, candidacy for the presidency. I find all of it still pretty boring. Just all of the yeah. Trump and DeSantis capos fighting on Twitter is is frustrating. Obviously, I'm gonna, I'm I'm on Trump's side here. I have no interest in supporting another giga Zionist who signs hate speech <laughs> laws in Israel. I'm not I'm not interested. 
in the yeah. whole DeSantis meme. But at the same time, I mean, Trump has come out with some good policies. I think Trump would definitely be better on the Ukraine issue. But obviously, we can never forget that Trump did was the one that started arming Ukraine when he was in office. So it's not like we're we really and some people were hyping up RFK Jr., but he's already completely caved on the Ukraine question, even publicly. Yeah. So as and far as us son- who is fighting in Ukraine in the Kharkov region. Yeah. In some in some special US military op. Like what? Like, yeah, no. Yeah, look, I liked RFK Jr. from back in the day, just being, you know, before COVID, I was, you know, I was against these vaccines from from way before all of that. And I think uh, and he's been good on that. But yeah, there's um, there's really no one to stalwartly support if you're a if you're a World War Three voter like like me. But um, ultimately, <laughs> you know, Trump Trump has earned my support in the broadest sense. I'm not like a sycophant or I wouldn't even necessarily say I'm a huge yeah. fan, but I'll be supporting him, if not just rhetorically against DeSantis on before we wrap this up one if you have any thoughts on the U.S. election GSP um yeah I mean uh you know Constantine and I always joke that he's our favorite chaos candidate and uh that, mm-hmm. that that's why we like him uh he's definitely a better alternative than Ron DeSantis uh it would it would really do something I mean if Trump got elected it would be I think it would be mayhem again and uh, maybe that will stifle, like, uh, you know, America's wartime efforts uh, in, in that sense. Because, you know, Trump makes a lot of big claims. Uh, you're right. He did, he did arm Ukraine, something that even Obama wasn't willing to do, even though it was his administration and um, people like Victoria Newland and Pyatt and, uh, and others who uh, helped facilitate the coup in Kiev. But... Um, um, generally, the Ukrainians don't like him, and um, but we'll see. You know, we'll see. Remember, he was going to pull out of uh, Syria, and they they backstabbed him. They they didn't pull out at all. They just lied to him. But, but something tells me that the you know the everybody from the State Department to the judiciary, like there's a lot of people who do not want to see him president again. Who never wanted to see him the first time, and I, I can't help but think that's a that's a good thing. I agree. It would be crazy and wild. And, you know, in many ways, I think a lot of us were like, all right, we got eight. This Trump guy got elected. They were excited. But we're going to have eight years of like some hard fighting. No, no. It turned out to be 12 years minimum because we had the whole stop the steal J6 everything, which this whole Biden term has been just as crazy as a Trump second term would be due to, you know, the whole, you know, Trump yeah. as kind of a leader in exile, you know, the whole legitimacy of the election. It became this whole thing. As far as domestic policy goes, um, I, I talk about this with Dr. Steve. I've written articles about this on TurleyTalks.com as well. My Domestically, I'm all in on greater Idaho. The, that's the only thing interesting me is moving Oregon's border to the west and mm. incorporating those 380,000 citizens in eastern Oregon into Idaho. For those that don't know, 12 out of the 15 and a half counties that need to support this to join Idaho have voted in favor of it and leaving Oregon. So... And the Idaho legislature supports it as well. So we're I'm watching that closely. Obviously, it's a long shot. But short of things like that, I, I, American domestic politics is kind of a clown show. So I, I choose to selectively focus on what I think is, you know, I think that would be something that would actually bring hope to people. And if, I think also if Trump got in power, things like state borders moving and real, you know, institutional change is ultimately more likely. So I think that's as good a reason as any to support the guy. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's basically my take. 
I, I don't like I don't expect great things to happen. Uh, like things moving in a positive direction if Trump is uh, elected president, but it would stifle some bad things. And I'm not necessarily an accelerationist, but I agree that, you know, the more black swan events, the more people I think get brought onto the right side of things. So I, I think in, mm -hmm. I support, I support those happening too. And so far as, you know, I also don't support, you know, violence or mass casualty right. events but in general you know think as they say things got to get worse for things to get better like i who knows if i would have hold the beliefs that i held today without you know the what the 9-11 ferguson all the things that happened in the 20th century you know it's a yeah. it's a journey for everybody but with all of that uh we've been going for an hour 20 here this was a great show Thank you so much for joining me, GSP. Everybody, worldwarnow.substack.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube, World War Now. On Twitter, we're World War Now underscore. On Twitter, I am Nomrad. Dimitri is O Canonist. On Telegram, we are World War Now Telly. And for those that want to hear more from GSP and uh, Constantine on the War Report, we'll have that linked below to their YouTube channel. And yeah, this has been great. We're going to be keeping you posted. Follow us on those channels and on Substack. I've got some articles coming. Dimitri will be back next week. Big things are happening in the world. Like we said, the Serbia-Kosovo situation is hot, hot, hot. So mm -hmm. we are going to be keeping you posted on all of that. And GSP, I'll let you sign the people off here. Thank you very much again for having me. And once again, it's an honor. And God bless everyone and take care. God bless y'all.